you've got to make sacrifices relative to the income you have. So I, when I talk to people, it's about how do we maximise what you want? If you're telling me you want a big portfolio in 10 years or 15 years, well, these are my ideas for you to, to follow. People can do whatever they want, but whether you pay down the debt or not, it's, it's sort of irrelevant. It's all about borrowing capacity. If you can't borrow the money, you can't buy anything. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And joining me on today's show is Stephen McClatchy. Now, Stephen was first on this show back in March 2021, episode 92, I think it was. And we're now up to episode 230-something by the time this comes out. Last time you were on the show, Stephen, it was you basically, um, yeah, for lack of a better term, like broke the internet because you revealed for the very first time for a lot of people around the concept of investing using trusts and how that actually might be beneficial to people's. And that was a real. That was a. That was a an iceberg moment, I think, for a lot of people uh, on their property investment journey. So I'm super excited to have you back. Welcome. How are you? Fantastic, Goose. I'm happy to be back and uh, glad to hear that our last uh, interview uh, caused some positive outcomes. And I certainly have seen that clients coming through uh, more more than ever structured in different uh, ways, which is great. Yeah, looking forward to today's uh, interview. Yeah, so it was, it was super funny, right? Because like when we had the interview last time, I had heard about um, you know the benefits of investing in trust. But even then, it was this kind of like, back alley secret somewhere that only a couple of people seem to even talk about only a couple of even, and so and i don't i don't know i don't i want to, don't want to necessarily lay all of the causation on the interview that we did but certainly that interview that we did where we talked about the benefits and if anyone wants to check that out by the way because we won't hash over old territory go and check it out it's episode number 92 i believe um of the investor lab dash on insider episode 92 go and check it out it's awesome like really awesome the thing is from that point, that was our most downloaded episode for a very long time. It got tens of thousands of uh, downloads. What's super interesting about that is since then, the conversation around how should I structure my finance? How should I structure my portfolio? What are the benefits of investing in trusts? All of this kind of stuff has suddenly become a much more talked about, uh, is a much more kind of like common conversation. In fact, I did a... Um, I did a, a, an event for a business um, group the other week. The main questions they had were like, hey, should I invest in trust? And what are the benefits of investing in trust? So it's crazy. Have you noticed that macro shift as well to this kind of thinking? Oh, I suppose because I've been doing it for 25 years. Um, so a lot of our clients know because we've been doing that for 25 years. But it's, I think it, as the market's got harder with especially 12 interest rate rises, people are looking for alternative solutions and, there's so much information out there about property investing now and, and people are wondering, okay, if I can only buy one or two properties, how are other people getting to 10 or 15 properties? And if those people, a majority of those will be in structures. And so I suppose the word seeps out and say, oh, okay, well, we, if you're in a structure, how does that work? How do we do that? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And one of the reasons, one of the things I'm most excited about today is like, like we, there's, there's a kind of common phraseology that people throw around, but I don't think it really sinks in for people that real estate investing is a game of finance with a few houses thrown in the mix. And, you know, I'm very grateful that we get to work with, uh, with you guys, with, our, with some of our clients, and, and, you know, there's a great synergy and partnership there. What we've gotten really good at is finding the right property in the right place at the right time and getting exceptional performance. 
But here's the thing. It's like a lot of people don't understand. You could get the best performing property in the world, but if you've, if you've failed to solve for one of three critical constraints, which is effectively access to capital, access to debt, access to cash flow, you're still going to get stuck. All three of those things are finance-oriented. They're all money-oriented. It's all like, how are you going to continue to finance the deal? And the fact that 71% of property investors get stuck at the first property, 90% get stuck at the second, and only 1% ever get to five or beyond, it's pretty bananas. And it really comes down to the finance capabilities. So I'd love to start by uh, talking about interest rates because a lot has changed in the last couple of years since last time we spoke, and specifically 12 interest rate rises, I think, I think it is now. How has that changed people's ability to be able to build a scalable property portfolio and to be able to buy multiple properties? Well, on the face of it, it, it could be dramatic. And so if you're an investor already, and we see this a lot, that you might, you might have four or five properties, and if you've bought all of those in your own name, it has a dramatic effect because to move your property into a different structure is quite expensive. And so generally most accountants and most people won't want to change the structure after the fact. We are doing one at the moment, though. We're having a, someone's office um, bought by the super fund. So that way they're the client, we're cashing out the client. So they're getting about 900,000 cash personally and their super fund's paying for it. And that's, they didn't even think, their accountant didn't even think about that. And so all of a sudden now the client's got more borrowing capacity and they've got 900,000 cash to invest with. So there's alternative ways of thinking about how to do things. Um, but it's preferable that we start with a structure and not having to fix the problem down the track. Because people got to remember that accountants are very good, but they're not, most of them aren't property investors. There are some out there who are exceptional at it, and they're the ones you've sort of got to work with. And most of them aren't telling clients what structure you should buy a property in and how finance affects it. And that's a critical point, that how you're going to buy the property, the structure, how you hold it, really has a big effect on how you can build your portfolio. So we've got a client at the moment who's actually one of yours. And I won't say the name, but this particular client has, I'd say, eight properties and they're maxed out and they were told they can't do anything more. And I've had a look at it, and um, this person had, I think, watched that earlier podcast from a few years ago and had been buying in trusts. So they've been doing the right thing, uh, and there's a couple of things we're now doing that to be able to free up more cash for them um, to move one property into a different structure, which they wanted to do anyway, and all of a sudden they're going to be ready to buy another two or three properties when they thought they couldn't do anything. And so... Serviceability is still there uh, for people, but it takes maybe the first step. They might not get it. might have to do a couple of things to get them in a position to be able to free up some cash to move forward. But, mm. look, if you own everything in your own home, it, it, it is a bit more restrictive than if we can set up some structures to give us more options as we move forward. Super interesting. So just back to that example that you were just giving, and again, without revealing any of the, the personal details. Yeah. So – that client has got eight properties that were all bought in trusts. Were they all uh, individual trusts or just like one so, trust? Yeah the, the, one. The, yeah, the family home was in their own name and got then it. all the investments were and not in one trust. And this is where we get smarter and they've done the right, they've actually done the right thing. Well, they did one mistake because they, they used, when you own a trust, you have what's called a trustee company. So you have a trust and then a company is a trustee for the, I want to get too technical, but like, go go as technical as you like. It's good. Oh, Let's okay. get as technical. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So they had one trust owning some property. Then they set up a second trust, but they used the same trustee company to, to manage and control both trusts. 
Now, on the face of it, yes, you'll save about mm, a couple of thousand a year in accounting fees, but what then restrictions can be is that when we're wanting to what I call isolate uh, or silo debts, it gets harder to do that because that trust is controlling both groups of properties. So if we had a trust a trustee company on each of them, we could say that, okay, this first trustee company looks after itself, it's profitable, it manages their funds, and your properties are fantastic because they're more cash flow positive. So it's easier to run. It's like a business. You're basically running a business, and that business is profitable. It's, it's looking after the liabilities. Then if we can show that, then we don't have to include any of those debts in serviceability. And so I could isolate with some lenders some debts and not have to show them. And in this person's situation, um, I can isolate once the, the family home's in a trust structure, I can go to a lender and basically show they've got no debt, that all those entities are looking after themselves that they've got, and then we can use their personal income to start buying in their own name again. Okay, so how does that work with the family home though, right? So, okay, so just to kind of, if someone's, if someone's hearing this for the first time, I'll give you the, I'll give you the 10,000 foot overview, right? So if you buy a property uh, in a trust with a trustee company who controls that trust, and if that property is cash flow positive, that company effectively is profitable and therefore can service its own debt. Therefore, any debt that's associated with that property becomes assumed by the company or is able to be allocated to the company and not to you individually. Therefore, you can effectively silo the debt in the company versus on your personal name. That's so. The, the, the underlying premise of that, though, is that the, the property asset, the pro, that individual property business, must be producing enough profit to be able to cover its all of its own expenses. How does that work if you put your home, your your family home, in a trust? Like, how does that actually? Okay, work? so if it's on its own, it may not work. So if it's just a family home in a asset trust, you might not be able to silo that. So that trust may need other form of income to make sure it's looking after its own debt. Um, so that would it depends on the person's situation whether we can have that siloed or not. It's not a given that you can silo everyone. It will depend on their situation. That's why when people are setting up a portfolio, sometimes if they've got a negatively geared property, they might put a couple of positives in that same trust to even all out. So it's, you know, or they might put some shares or crypto, whatever they like, in into that entity to make sure it is looking after its, own, you know, looking after itself. Um, so you just have to be smart about how you're going to play out your portfolio. Uh, but it's not that difficult to do over a period of time. It's actually quite easy. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting, right? Because there's a lot of kind of prevailing advice out there, which is kind of something along the lines of um, buy the first few properties in your own personal name. Then once you've run out of borrowing capacity, um, go and start buying in trusts. And the, the problem with that, I'd love to get your take on that general advice, by the way. And of course, anyone listening to this, none of this is financial advice. We're talking about ideas. Go speak to a professional. Get your own personal circumstances assessed. None of this is meant to be direct personal advice for you. But it's very interesting stuff to learn about and to think about because it's actually going to help you to become a better investor. So the, here's, here's the problem I've got with that general uh, approach. Number one, if you wait until you've run out of borrowing capacity, then you're going to have a pretty hard time setting up a trust and borrowing again because you've already run out of borrowing capacity, so you've already waited too long. Number two, the people that I've seen that have done that, i.e. bought the first couple, even if it's the first two in their personal names, then they've gone on to you know buy five or six or seven more in uh, trust structures and stuff because they, you know, they got smart, they were able to silo debt, they were able to move a bit quicker. The problem is they usually still get to a point where they're like, damn it, I now need to go back to those original properties and I either need to move them into another structure and i.e. pay stamp duty on them or I'm going to sell them and just move on. And so I've never seen it actually work out in the long run 
for people that have a desire to build a significant portfolio. It might be okay if you only ever aspire to own one or two or three properties. But if you if you aspire to own, you know, five, six, 10, 15 properties, it, it, I can't actually see how that actually is good advice to to anyone starting out. I'd love to know your take on that. Yeah, well, I'd say it's non-optimal. So there's there's ways of doing things. If you want to optimize and maximize what you're doing, essentially you wouldn't even own a home, you'd rent. If you want to, if we're talking maximizing everything, I wouldn't own a home when you're starting out. So you, you want to rent. And so that, and also people, people don't understand the impact on borrowing capacity renting has compared to owning. It is absolutely significant. And it could mean the difference between having 10 properties and having three. The amount of impact owning own, people forget when you own own home, your own home, it's not just the mortgage you're paying. You're renovating the house. You're buying extra furniture for the house. You've got all the rates and upkeep of the house. All these extra things you've got to pay for. And, and banks now, they data match everything. So in the old days, you could get away, oh, I only spend 2000 a month on living. You can't do that anymore. The banks know what you spend. They look at everything. And then if you own your own home, all these things you spend on your lifestyle because you're living in your own home is enormous. And quality of life is important, Yes. But if your goal is to maximise your wealth is in the quickest time possible, the only option would be to rent. Now, obviously, at the moment, we've got some problems because we're importing half a million people every year and we don't have the properties to house them. So if you're going to rent, my advice would be to sign a long-term contract wherever you're going to rent so you're not going to be kicked out. But putting that to the side, we're talking optimal strategies. So I'd be renting because when you're doing uh, paying rent on a property, the bank is taking that actual repayment as your expense. So let's just say you spend 2000 a month on rent. They're saying, okay, your expenditure is 2000 a month. But say you've got a mortgage and that mortgage is 2500 a month, they're putting a buffer on top of that mortgage. So instead, even though it might have cost you 2500 a month, for serviceability, it might be 3800 a month. You see what I mean? So you're living in a property that you could either pay 2000 a month rent with no buffer on top for serviceability or you're buying a house and the banks are putting on 2 to 3% buffer on average on top of your repayment. And not only that, you spend way more money on your own home because you want to beautify it and live in it and all of that than what you do in a rental. When you live in a rental, you're not painting the house. You're not going out and buying $10,000 sofas and things like that. You're not spending as much. So you've got more expenditure then to start funneling into funding funding all your investments. So I don't want to get off track too much, but we're talking about optim- how, do you, how do you optimize your borrowing and how do you get a, a big portfolio? This is the way to maximize it. And then you're right. I'd actually, for most people, would only be starting initially in trusts. The reason why some people might own a property or two in their own name is they're doing it from the tax angle because if you're paying a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand in tax, and you're getting a negative gear property, yes, you can offset some of that, you know, by the government. And so, fair enough, you're going to do that. But then you've got to weigh up the style of property and what you want to get out of your property. Because you could buy a property in the city that has off the plan that has huge depreciation but doesn't grow in 20 years. So you say, is that what I want? Or do I want to buy another property for 500000 which is going to double in six or seven? I don't get involved in, in that side of things, but that has a massive impact of how quickly you're going to get the next deposit to build your portfolio. Because like you said, it 
it's if you can't get a deposit, you can't grow either. And you've got to have the borrowing to do it. So I'd be buying in trusts, definitely. Um, I'd be renting if you're going to maximise what you want to do. And then I wouldn't be putting everything in the same trust. I'd be splitting the trusts up. And uh, if you do, people do want to buy properties, which is sort of what I call growth. Uh, I call accumulate. I call them accumulators, but growth style properties. I'd be mixing those with a couple of what I call accelerators or more cash flow property. And so you're getting trusts which are basically neutral or slightly positively geared. And that allows me to work my magic in finance and build these massive portfolios. Um, and you've got superannuation, which I love as well. That's given people a lease of life in the last you know, five to ten years. So people could really be building a portfolio four ways at one time. They could be building a portfolio in their own name, building a portfolio in company trust structure, building a portfolio in a super fund, and then they could also do things called joint ventures as well. So all these, you could be doing all these strategies all at one time <laughs> and all of a sudden you, you thought, you know, you can only buy one property, all of a sudden you've got six in, you know, in 12 months because uh, you're doing all these sorts, sorts of things at the one time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, isn't it, right? So because really what we're talking about there is is portfolio composition but from a kind of a more fractal level as well because there's like the macro portfolio composition, i.e. what structures and what's going to go where in the portfolio and then even within those structures, what types of assets are going to be suitable for that. And you've then got to consider the types of assets based on the characteristics those assets are going to have, not uh, is one a unit and one's a house or one's a whatever. It's like what are the characteristics Right. And so, for example, you may, um, to your point, you may want to have multiple trust structures so you can, you know, you can independently isolate different parts of your portfolio. And there's lots of ways to think about this, by the way. You know, like you can have trusts by state. You can have um, a thesis where you have no more than three properties in any trust or no more than one property in any trust. So you can sort of come up with your own portfolio rules. And there's different, um, there's different pros and cons with that, by the way. The, the by state is also pretty interesting because then you get to um, uh, it might actually help you to manage things like land tax a little bit. But the only way that you you think about that is like, okay, cool. So let's say I'm going to go buy a five hundred thousand dollar property um, in one trust, and let's say it's going to be negative cash flow by five grand a year. Could I also buy another property which could supplement that um, cash flow by five thousand dollars and thus bring bring that part of the portfolio to positivity or neutrality, therefore making it independently viable. Is that a kind of a right way to think about it? Yes. Not that I can, uh, obviously we're just talking in uh, generalities, but yes, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be trying to make each trust um, run itself, uh, definitely. And then also if you run a business, it's much easier too because businesses could could you know have other, these trust entities do things for them and, and it re- receive income as well. And let's just say you've got a business and you're making half a million dollar profit, you know, you could move some of that profit into some of these entities as well um, to obviously reduce your overall liability, your tax liabilities and all sorts of things. Um, not, you know, not giving accounting advice, but all these sorts of things. You know, uh, Terry Packer said you've got to be a mug to be paying tax. So uh, I agree. I, that's what I got out of him. <laughs> so. I agree. What, what a... <laughs> Hey, what advice would you give to people who are freaking out about freaking out at the moment about negative cash flow? Because obviously a couple of years ago, everyone's got very short memories. That's the first thing I want to say. And a lot of people in the last few years when we had um, really low interest rates, that be- they normalized it. You know, they normalized the fact that interest rates were 1% or 2% or even 3% or whatever. And so their mindset around what makes a good investment was based around, in many cases, their ability to get positive cash flow. 
However, with rising interest rates, um, and there's still plenty of opportunity to get growth, I see a lot of people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines going, oh, well, unless I can get positive cash flow, I don't want to invest. And, and kind of my point of view, though, is that they could be costing themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars in growth by not participating. And I'd love to get your take on that, from particularly from the context of how important it is to be able to maintain serviceability. So how would you kind of rationalize those two, those two things for, and maybe if you've got examples of where you've seen people go through this? Yeah, well, there's a couple of questions you've really got there. And the over the overriding answer I, I would say is that property is a long-term game. And so if you're taking a long-term perspective to property in Australia, we can only go by what's happened, is that most property doubles every 10 to 12 years. You know, if you've got a house in a decent location, you might be lucky to get it seven or eight years. If you've got a unit, potentially or a bad or worse area, maybe it's 14 years. But longer term, most properties are, are, are doubling at a certain rate. So if you keep that in mind, um, what happens is that over the length of a 30 or so year mortgage, you're going to have periods of time where the interest rates are super low, where they're 2 or 3% because the economy is stuffed. Then you're going to have times where the economy's had a boom and they need to rein things in and rates get pushed up. And at the moment, we're actually pretty fortunate because rates have been pushed up. That's what's happened. And we're only in the sort of sixes for most people. So long term, the average interest rate over a 30-year term is normally about 7%. So it looks like we're going to peak under that in this cycle and then we'll start to potentially go down next year. So when you're looking at it like that, that interest rates are only 6 or 7% on average over a 30-year loan, but properties are doubling every 7 to 10 years. How I look at it is that you only pay tax on a property if you sell. If you never sell the property, you're not paying capital gains. But if you utilise equity in a property, that's not considered income. So how I look at it is that I've got this massive ATM cash machine. So all my properties are ATM machines. That's how I look at it that I can go and make withdrawals basically as much as I like over 30 years, even more. So how I look at it is, okay, if I'm pulling out a little bit of ATM money to supplement my massive wealth generation, it makes sense because if, let's say, you're negatively geared in the worst part of the cycle, say we're now in the worst part of this cycle where you might be negatively geared, let's say, 1000 a month. 1000 a month is only $12,000 a year. If you've got a property worth half a million, and it's going up by 7% a year, that's 35000 So your property's gone up by 35000 in growth and it's costing you twelve to keep. So it seems to me you're making money. So how I look at it is that I want to have buffers in place so that I can draw down an equity. If Let's say my cash flow, I can't cut it and I've got to use equity. I think it's an investment in the future and I call it the cost of doing business. So as long as I've got these buffers in place and I know, okay, I'm drawing down out of the equity now, but I know if I can keep that property and not sell it because I'm desperate for a short period of time, because rents will catch up. So it's always things go and then rents catch up. And a lot of people would experience that. Like in Sydney, I've had, Matt and Perth, myself, anecdotally, I've had lots of rent rises, which is fantastic. So you just have to get through the bad times. That's what people do. They have these buffers in place to draw down on when the, the time's tough. And then when prices rise again, that's when you draw out your buffers again and, and build them up again when the, when the market improves. I think you've got to take this long-term approach to property, not a short-term one, and you've got to expect interest rates are going to rise during your process and then they'll fall. It's, it hasn't changed in the last 28 years of me doing it. 
I'd love to get your your opinion on this then as, as a way to kind of manage that. Because a lot of people see a negative cash flow number and then they just think about what's going to hit them in the hip pocket. They're like, oh, my God, I don't want to have to pay another 12 grand a year. That's a lot of money. And fair enough. So a lot of people it is. What about the idea of um, systematically and continuously, let's say every six months, just hypothetically, reviewing your portfolio, pulling out any and all equity that you can and sitting it in offsets so that you've got effectively, you've taken your illiquid equity, you've made it liquid, you're still offsetting it against your loans, but if your repayments are also coming out of the offset account, if there's a delta between those two things, then effectively your property's equity is paying for those repayments, that additional. So on a personal level, you're actually not, you're actually using your property to pay the delta. What is, what are your, what are your kind of thoughts on that as a strategy? Yeah, well, we do that. So depending on how big our client is, either six monthly or yearly, we do that. So we do interest rate reviews for people who, especially on time and cash flow, but we do about on average five to 10 valuations per property when we review clients. And that has a phenomenal effect. I think I mentioned that last time we spoke as well. So it takes a bit of time to do it, but it has a very big impact on their ability to move forward. Um, the best time to get equity or cash from a bank is when you can afford it. <laughs> and so don't wait. Um, if you've got good income at a certain point in time, get as much equity out as you can. Some people still get a bit worried about paying mortgage insurance. I say that's a minimal cost in terms of the overall growth of what your net wealth is going to be. People should focus on how, how much their net wealth is growing not how much it's costing. As long as they're making a profit overall, that's a crit critical point, and you're building your net wealth. Uh, that's a critical point as well. So I'd agree with you. I'd pull out as much equity as I can all the time, sit it in offsets. Don't sit it in redraw because the redraw is the bank's money. If things get tough, they can turn it off. If it's in an offset, they can't. It's your money, uh, absolutely. Um, I'd be doing that as much as they can. Uh, most banks allow it at least six monthly. Some you can do quicker. But six or 12 months is generally when they allow equity and further equity release. Um, and with that, you've got to be a bit careful about how you do valuations on properties as well. So we have a certain way of doing that. So normally when we're doing that, we start the valuations with lenders we're definitely not going to use for that client uh, and valuers. So we'll know what valuers lenders have. Because if we use, and this has happened um, a couple of times recently, we've worked with with, with companies that they've gone out and done a, a valuation on a property and then we wanted to use the lender that they used and they did a, um, a desktop and it didn't come up to where we needed it and we did our own one but then the desktop was lower and it overrid our valuation. Uh, and so once they've got one on their system, you can't override it with a higher valuation for six months. And so we generally always start with valuers which aren't on the lenders we're going to use. So we're not we're not out of the out of the ballpark because it is a bit restrictive. Um, a lot of lenders won't allow you to pick your own valuer. Um, so when things are tough, we've got a few lenders where, where we can uh, pick our own value, and that helps. Um, but most of the big banks that people are familiar with, it's very restrictive about how we can. Go about that. Can you go back? Can you go back and challenge the valuation? Because I know I've done that before, where the value the value was just like it was ridiculously under undervaluing the asset. Do you ever go back and and go, hey? <laughs> very rarely. Be, it's yeah, very right. rarely we challenge it. The reason being is that the to challenge the valuation with a, a with a bank, you have to have free comparables. So if if it is a big problem, then. Where the biggest issue is is when you've got a property which is a non-standard property in an area 
And so there's not many um, comparisons. That's when there's a really big problem and there can be a discrepancy. So what I generally do then, and this is why our system works and why we do it is that we get a minimum of five valuations per property. So we did, we did that front. And sometimes it's a massive difference. We did a few properties in Tasmania about four months ago for a client who's got four down there. And on one property, uh, he said it was worth 450 and we had valuations from 375 to 600 on the same property. Um, <laughs> and, so, and that 600 might be completely bonkers, but to the client, if they could get that extra equity out, if they've got no intention of selling and using that to build the portfolio, it makes sense. So I don't care, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that as well because, like, I've seen some pretty wild valuations come in. Like, we had um, we had a client who settled and then I actually don't know how and why this happened specifically, but what I do know is that we got a valuation for their property two weeks after they'd settled. <laughs> the valuation was $295,000 higher than what they had paid for it, right? So, on the one hand, I think we would all agree, and it was like a – Let's say it was a $400,000 property and it was valing up at um, $600,000, right? I think we could all agree it probably didn't grow by $200,000 in, in two weeks. Oh, look, you did but, amazing Renault, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> but so whilst we might agree that that may not be market value, is it reasonable to then still see that as real value? It's like, okay, well, they think that there's that much cash. I'm just going to go rip all the equity out. What, like, how do you think about that? Do you sort of go, okay, it's not not real? Or do you just opportunistically say, ha, ah, here's someone who thinks it's worth that. Cool, give me the money. Absolutely. Look, I'm not a valuer and I wouldn't purport to be one, just like I'm not an accountant. Um, so all I can do is use the data in front of me. And look, the good thing about property is it's, it's like if you watch a TV show, The Block, you know, it's obviously ridiculous. But one person might has paid $5 million for a property that's worth nowhere near that because they've got a reason for buying it for $5 million, let's say. And that's the same with the valuers. Like different valuers see different things or um, for some reason there's a comparable in there that, that has pushed it up. I don't know. Um, so I take whatever data I'm given and I work, I work with that data. And if we're lucky enough, and I get it all the time, like I gave you the Tasmania example, there's you know, $200,000 difference between the highest and lowest val. So how I look at things is, you know, we've got 170 lenders on our panel. And how I look at it is I don't care who they are. All I care is about what they're going to do for my client. And so my job really is to get as I my job is really easy. One thing I've got to do is really find as much equity as I can in a property and lend someone as much as I can uh, within obviously the bounds of the rules. And so that's all I've got to do. And for sometimes I might have five valuations. One might be a standout, but then the client doesn't service with that top valuation. They might service with the second one. So it's a balancing act of, as to where they end up. But I don't care if that first lender's, you know, Banana Coast Credit Union um, or it's NAB. I, I, I don't give two hoots. All I care about, are they going to show my client the money? Um, give them the money and they can grow. And obviously the client, they've got their big boy pants on and they've got to make their own decisions as to what they're going to buy and what they can afford. But, you know, I give them the rules. I say this is what you can afford to borrow and it's up to them. If they don't make it work and they go out and spend all their money and can't afford their repayments, well, that's on them. But hopefully with an investor mindset and especially obviously working with um, companies like yourself where you're going to have to set them on the right path, at least they've got a mentor. I think people have got mentors and have people to help them. I find are much more successful than people trying to wing it themselves. Um, I've definitely found that over the years that 
that people do exceptionally well compared to people, you know, and they do a lot more and, yeah, it's much, much Yeah, well, well, I mean, it shows up in the stats, right? Like 71% get stuck at one and 90% don't get past two. I mean, like the evidence is there to suggest that most people, when they do it themselves, don't actually get very far. I want to ask about interest rates versus access to capital. How important, like how, how would you kind of rationalise this because a lot of people get freaked out by high interest rate numbers, and to your point earlier, that they're, they're relatively relative to uh, long term averages, not high, but just high uh, relative to recent memory. So, what's more important, uh, interest rates or access to capital? And at what point would it stop making sense to continue to have a higher interest rate? Well, as an investor, uh, access to capital is the most important thing for me initially because you can't save your way to wealth. You can only get wealthy by leveraging uh, unless you inherited a gazillion dollars. So for people, they've got to be able to access, first thing they've got to be able to access deposits and equity. And so if you can improve a property to pull equity out, fantastic. Or if you have to wait for market movements, okay, fair enough, but it could take a bit more time to do that. And that's why we maximise things by getting lots of valuations. So that's the first part. The second, obviously, is the cost of funds. And so if you've got really tight income, um, then you've got to be very wary about how you're going to fund the shortfall. And so that's what people have got to work out before they go into it. And so I find more and more now it's very interesting that people have made a decision, I want to grow my wealth, I'm willing to get a second job. So we have a lot of clients who have second jobs. They're trying to, or they're trying to do some, some sort of uh, sales thing or some sort of gig to build up their revenue. So we have also lenders that allow borders. So you'll love this. One of our or two of our lenders actually say you've got a four-bedroom house. You can actually put borders in your house. Don't even need to show it on a lease agreement and we can include $100 a week net as extra serviceability per room. But, you know, don't tell me you've got three borders when you've got a two-bedroom house. It's not really going to work. So it's got to make sense. But there's things out there that people can do to increase their revenue. But it's pretty simple. You've got income and expenses. You've got to increase your income, lower your expenses. If you don't, if you're starting out, obviously if you've got a portfolio, that's where you want to sort of release the equity and have buffers and things like that. But it's not magic. If if you've got a, a negative cash flow of 500 a week, you've got to service it somehow. Um, so whether you're going to rein in your expenses and maybe instead of four streaming services, you cut it back to one. Um, maybe instead of having two cars, you cut it back to one, and all of a sudden you've saved ten, twelve thousand a year. That's one of the common things we look at cars <clears throat> a lot of people these days actually much more convenient and cheaper to use uber and and even you know other services there's quite a few services out there now and instead of only a car a car is very restrictive most of the time you're only using it 10 to 15 percent of its of, of the day if that but you've got this dead asset which is going down in value and and costing you a fortune yeah it's so it's so it's so funny just on that note it's so funny i like when you know we started you know I guess seeing some degree of success, and I started thinking, "Oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, what what, what are we going to do now?" And I started, I started thinking, "Oh, maybe we'll get it. Maybe we'll finally get a fancy car. Maybe we'll finally." And I was thinking, "Oh, yeah, maybe we'll go buy a BMW or something like that." And then I was looking at the costs, and I was looking. Then I was looking at, okay, how often would I use the car? And I, I worked out that I had I would have to catch an Uber premium every day, twice a day, uh, every day of the year, and I still wouldn't come up to the same costs 
as the cost of the car. As if when it got one, I was like, okay, so I can like for less money, I can just have someone drive me around every single day. I was like, I was like, that doesn't even make any sense. Why would you do that? Um, speaking of things that may or may not make sense, I see a lot of um, there's a kind of like a lot of there's a I guess a propensity kind of for kind of like mortgage broker slash finance guru types to have this um, idea that they push, which is um, pay down your home loan uh, in five years or seven years or whatever the case may be, and all of a sudden that's how you're going to get rich, right? And basically the whole the whole thesis is do everything you can as quickly as possible to pay down all of your debt, and that's how you're going to get rich. I'd love to get your point of view on that. Uh, why, why would that make sense? Why wouldn't that make sense? What's your point of view? I'm a massive proponent of paying debt down, huge. And the only reason is serviceability. So I don't even care if it's investment debt. So I say always be paying something down because um, you'll eventually reach a cap, especially if you're not doing trusts and and things like that. So whether it's your home, if you've got a home, you pay that off first because it's non-deductible. So if you haven't got a home and you're renting, um, you can start paying down an investment. Or initially what you do is you pay it down by putting money in an offset account with the the investment property. You put it, you know, saving it for the the next property. But... So for some people, it's good to pay down debt because there's generally two people in every partnership uh, and you've got to make sure both people are on the same wavelength. And what I've found over the 28 years of doing this, you might have one of them who loves debt and wants to get as much as they can and they understand how it works, comfortable with it, but then you get the partner who maybe is not. And we've got one case in present at the moment where a family unit ended up buying five properties and then uh, there's two two brothers and partners and things, and things didn't go well. And there's divorce on the horizon, and parents getting retirement, and all of a sudden um, they set up these trusts to buy the properties to make it all happen. Now they want to sell the lot because they've got all scared, and the wife doesn't want all the debt, and parents are retiring, and people's goals change, and, and so <laughs> all these have got to be taken into account when you're getting all this debt. But if you are if for some people paying down debt is a, psychologically a positive for them. They, some people just cannot handle. I'm a massive advocate of interest only in everything, even our own home. Um, but we haven't got time to go into sort of why, but that's what I say. I don't know. I think we've still got time to go into why. Like why why, why you – because I think this is a really – it's a really interesting conversation because right now, like I think people generally – sorry to cut you off there, by the way, but like it, it's – Generally, people are like, okay, I understand real estate is probably the best way to build wealth. The things that they get stuck on are things like how to think about debt. Um, is it okay to do interest only or not? Should I be doing principal and interest uh, from the get-go? Should I, um, should I be focused on paying down my debt as fast as possible? Is debt bad? These are all really common things that people still struggle with. And so, and this is actually kind of the, what I sort of wanted to tease out actually a little bit was how to think about debt in the current environment. Sure, interest rates might be higher, but like, you know, thinking about things like access to credit, that's actually far more important in my point of view than interest rate. You've affirmed that, right? If you can get access to credit, you can keep moving forward. You're going to build your wealth faster. Cycles come and go. They go up, they go down, move forward anyway, all good. Um, paying down debt. I mean, look. Everyone's got their own personal circumstances and personal understanding. I'm like, hey, if you could just put all the cash in an offset, you've effectively offset your debt and also you've still got it liquid so you're not actually paying down the debt. My point of view on, by the way, just on paying down debt is it's a very low rate of return, right? So if you're putting your dollars into paying down debt, you're effectively getting a whatever your interest rate return is on paying down the debt, right? And so versus if you were to 
So, for example, if you're paying down a, a, a principal that has a, has a 6% interest rate, you're effectively getting a 6% return on your capital by paying that down. It's kind of a very simplistic way of thinking about it, unless I've got that, that kind of wrong. But that's how I think about it. Uh, versus could I take that same money and then get a bit larger return? So could I take that same money and get a 10, or 20, a 50% return on capital over the over the same period of time? And the answer is probably, probably yes. I could probably get a higher rate of return. So why would I want to pay down the debt anyway? And so digging into this kind of thinking around like, well, why, why, why would you do any of this is actually really, really important. So what's your point of view on interest only? Like why would you only pay interest only? It's the most efficient form of debt, interest only. Um, because it is the it's the best way to maximise your capital, uh, like you actually said, and that using offset accounts you can you can get the same savings. So what I say is, if you've got to own home, I actually am positive in paying off your debt, your, your home, your non your non deductible debt. I'm happy for people to do that because most people have that in their own name, and so it does affect serviceability, and that's where people go wrong. Unfortunately, is that when they buy their own home. Most people aren't buying a, a basic home. They're buying a home to nearly maximise their borrowing capacity. And I said all the time mm. that they can borrow 700000 So what happens? They go out and buy a million-dollar home and they've got a $700,000 debt and they're pretty much maxed out from their buying a home, a family home. Um, and so if that's the case, they're going to be uh, waiting a while before they can get that investment property. So one, we've got to build a deposit and two, we've got to build serviceability. So a benefit of paying down debt is, is you're basically recycling your non-deductible debt <clears throat> into tax-deductible debt and tax-deductible borrowing capacity. So I am a big advocate. And for both people, psychologically, they're building their net wealth. So even if you're in a year's, because when we've got a 10-year cycle, there's only really a couple of years where you've got astronomical growth. In most areas, you're not going up by 8 or 9% a year. As you know, it's all variable. And so... If you're in a year in the cycle where you haven't got much capital growth but you've paid 30000 off your home, at least your net wealth is going ahead. Then if you go back to the bank and say, oh, I want to borrow more money, all of a sudden you've got more equity and you can do that. And so there's certain methods I use to put in place little short-term goals or targets for clients. So we, we sort of siphon off some loan limits and make them a lot smaller. It's nearly like a game. Okay, here's a limit of 30000 Let's get that ripped apart in, in 12 months then all of a sudden there's your deposit of your next property. So people respond really well to having targets and goals, but they've got to be realistic. So when you've got a $500,000 home loan, it's not realistic to think you can pay it off in, in 10 years. You actually can, but people don't initially think it's realistic because it's such a big goal. But if you break it down and say, oh, here's a $30,000 loan or a $40,000 loan, let's smash that in 12 months, that's more realistic. But, but I just want to kind of like respectfully challenge on that a little bit, right? So you, what you're saying is like by paying down the debt, you can access more equity, right? But effectively, the equity the that you're capacity, able... The, the, yeah, the sure, main reason sure, is but, sure, but it's Sure, but it's relative to the amount of cash you've put in it, which is the cash you had anyway, right? Yeah. So you it's sort not of just that. If you want to maximise, I'm about maximising people's positions. So it's yeah. not just about the income you earn. It's also about the decisions you make with the income you have. Yeah. So when I was talking to earlier about people having two or three cars or people um, buying a big house instead of renting, all these things actually have an exponential effect o o over what people can do. People can't have everything. People got to get over the fact you can't have the big house, you can't have the BMW, 
You can't be holidaying in Thailand every year and expect to have a massive portfolio in five years. You've got to make you've got to make sacrifices relative to the income you have. So I, when I talk to people, it's about how do we maximise what you want. If you're telling me you want a big portfolio in ten years or fifteen years, well, these are my ideas for you to to follow. Um, people can do whatever they want, but whether you pay down the debt or not, it's it's sort of irrelevant. It's all about borrowing capacity. If you can't borrow the money, you can't buy anything. So I focus on ways to enhance their borrowing capacity, and there's a number of ways they can do that. And whether they're paying down their own occupied, for some people they've got no choice because their borrowing capacity is going to be hampered because they're PAYG. We can't – I love dealing with self-employed. There's so many cool things we can do to maximise their borrowing capacity, but when you're PAYG, you're more limited. And that's why I say to them, look, you've got to think about setting up a company and getting a side hustle business because then we can start to do some funky stuff when you've got this business. But um, <laughs> if you're you know, just a PAYG, you are a bit restricted, and that's when buying properties in trusts and companies are going to help, and that's when making the hard decision to maybe have one car and other things come into play as well. But I understand what you're saying, but I, I, I advocate interest only. Not everyone does that, but that's my way of doing things, and I found out that works really well, and and uh, you can still pay down debt even though it's interest only if you wanted to. Um, but I understand you're not getting any good value for money, but it helps people get ahead quicker. And psychologically, for both parties, they they're getting they're, they're seeing some results for what they're doing straight away. Yeah, okay, makes sense. What about um, uh, we probably don't have a lot of time for this, so so let's do the let's do the kind of helicopter view of this. Debt recycling, though, because what, we, what we're sort of pointing to, what we've pointed to a couple of times is um, debt on your own home is actually suboptimal because it's non-tax deductible. It's going to significantly drag on your borrowing capacity. It's non-income producing debt. It's not tax, like all these kind of things. And so, therefore, it's got a significant capability to inhibit your ability to achieve your wealth goals, right? There's nothing wrong with owning a dream home, but it can get in the way. So I've got two pieces that I want to throw in this puzzle and I'd love to get you just to kind of riff them. One of them is debt recycling. So how can people, because then you're effectively maximizing the debt on your um, principal place of residence in order to create a funding vehicle for your property portfolio. And the second piece of this, which we can come back to uh, as well, is actually using your property equity in your property portfolio to at a later stage in your portfolio, like build a property portfolio first build up enough equity so you can take the equity out of your portfolio to then go buy the dream home so you don't have to worry about it anyway. But we'll start with the first part first, debt recycling. What's your point of view? It really depends what you mean by debt recycling. The way we look at that is replacing non-deductible debt with deductible debt. Um, that's how we look at well, – is that what your terminology of debt Yeah, recycling? yeah, that's what I'm talking about, yep. yep. Yeah, and so people do that a range of ways and, and by buying you know cash flow positive assets and properties and utilising that debt – against your home, we use a, a multiple offset strategy to have every available cent paying down your home as well. Um, and we look at other lifestyle decisions to help them maximise that. But, yeah, it's for people, the biggest barrier that people have had realistically is, one, access to, to a deposit for your next property and, two, borrowing capacity. They're the two problems that people have. And we just focus on solving those two problems and doing it in the most maximised way we can because um, at the end of the day, so many people we see have got a, a large loan on their home, a large loan. And that really, when you've got 11 interest, 12 interest rate rises, that really affects their ability to borrow a lot of extra properties. 
And so people have really got to make a decision then what do they want to do? Do they want to stay what they're doing and, and maybe buy some little $100,000 property somewhere or maybe they want to rent the property out and maybe they go and rent somewhere and rent it out? There's decisions they've got to make if they really want to move ahead. Um, or maybe instead of buying the big million-dollar house, say they start with a unit or a townhouse. Um, but unfortunately, these are hard decisions people are going to make uh, if they want to get ahead. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm a massive advocate of uh, rent vesting. So renting, renting, you can rent the lifestyle, you know. And I, every time I think about, oh man, it'd be nice to go buy some big fancy thing. I just every time I think about, I think about the capital equation. I'm like. Oh, I just can't justify putting the capital in that place when I could just rent it for like a fraction of the cost that it would cost to buy it and I could still deploy my capital better. Well, example there, when I first moved to Melbourne, I lived in a place there called Brighton and um, we rented. I've, I've rented for 20 years before I bought my own home. But um, we're renting there initially, uh, I think it was 800 a week and the average cost of a property was over $2 million. And so the difference between what the rent is on a property comparable to what the mortgage was is astronomical. You can live in a really good location for a fraction of what it would cost just on the mortgage, let alone all the other things you actually have to pay when you own a property. And I worked that out very early on. And that's why you know I was able to buy a lot of property because I didn't have this massive mortgage non-deductible debt. But you know, once you get to the point where you can, then you buy the big home, like you said later, and keep everyone happy in the family. Yeah, love it, love it. Final uh, final question that I want to ask before we wrap it up. Uh, where do you see interest rates? Well, there's two questions in here. Where do you see interest rates going over the next 12 months? Point of view, perspective only, just your point of view only, not, not, a, not a crystal ball. And number two, what advice would you have for people that are thinking about investing in the current environment, but maybe they're sitting on the fence? Yeah, so in terms of interest rates, uh, we're quite close with a couple of economists. And they're all predicting that towards the second half of next year, they're going to start to roll down again. Um, obviously, we're going to follow world trends in that place. And they believe with an election in America next year, and um, they're going to start turning the money taps on again and dishing out money and making it a bit easier for people. So I think we'll follow suit. So I don't see why that's going to be any different. And over here, they'll want to reduce the rates. Um, it's interesting because we've got all these migrants coming in and need properties, and that's going to fuel, obviously, uh, inflation a bit as well. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen there, but rates will, rates will come down again next year. Um, in terms of uh, people's affordability now, I think how I look at it is property is long-term. So whenever you can afford to buy it, you buy it. It's very difficult to time short-term swings in how things are going to perform. And a lot of the time when you try to do that, you do the wrong thing. So I'd mm -hmm. say you know, get in the market, start uh, making it work for you, uh, as much as you can. And generally when people are fearful, that's when you want to get in. So you want to see doom and gloom in the media because that means there's going to be less people looking for property, less people wanting to buy, and also vendors more fearful about getting a terrible result. So you're going to negotiate harder. So I actually prefer to buy when there's doom and gloom and you want to sell if you have to sell or don't even sell, just get better valuations when it's all rosy. The things are going through the roof, things are flying, rents are going up. That's when you want to go back and revalue the property and pull more equity out not when things are bad, when things are good. Love it. Stephen, as always, I appreciate every interaction we get to have. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy. Thanks, guys. All the best. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.